Staying true to America's national destiny, the voice of the awakening. Your host, Bishop E. W. Jackson. Now here again, while we're tearing down the statues of the founding fathers, somebody needs to start talking about that and thinking about that because of their foresight and selflessness, we don't live under a dictatorship. You can like Donald Trump, you can hate Donald Trump, you can like Barack Obama or hate him, you can like Bill Clinton or hate him, you can like George Bush or hate him, you can like Ronald Reagan or hate him, you can like, you pick the, pick the person, you can like him or hate him, and I know there are all these rumors floating around, but let me tell you something, Either at the end of four years or eight years, they're moving on. And by the way, here's the beauty of our system. Even if there is a president in office that I like, at the end of eight years, I want him gone. Yeah. Yeah, but you like him. Yeah, I don't care. <laughs> I don't want to live in a country where one person has Power that just perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates and perpetuates. That's how you end up in a dictatorship where you lose all your liberty. I mean, look, the Christian principle, the heart is deceitfully wicked above everything. Who can know it? That was the basis upon which the founding fathers said, nobody's going to have absolute power in this. Uh-uh. No, 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 no. Not even us. Not even us. The president will be checked by the Congress. The Congress will be checked by the Supreme Court. And all of us will be checked by the people. All right? Faith. First principle, faith. Second is family. You say, well, wow, that's, that's interesting. Why, why would you even bring that up? How, how important was that? Well, well, first of all, the, the early settlers came as families. The pioneers pioneered out the West as families. That's, that's how things got done. Remember, we, we are so accustomed to the modern era. My children are scattered all over the country. I have one in Texas, one in Atlanta, one in Boston. We're here in Virginia. That wasn't the way it was in the early days of the country. We apparently stuck together and worked together, <laughs> built together, and did everything together because they needed all that, that mutual support of each other in order to deal with a very hostile environment. Family was the key. In fact, here again, if you read into the biographies of the founding fathers, or any president or any prominent person uh, in American history, you will always read about their families. You'll read about where they came from. You'll read about who their fathers and mothers were. You'll read about their wives. I say, you know, George, George would not have been George Washington without Martha. Martha Washington was critical to George Washington's career. Because, you know, George Washington was not born to wealth, but his wife was. And, 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 and George Washington got introduced to the elite of society because of his military service to Fairfax, after whom Fairfax County is named. He kind of took George Washington under his wing and brought him, you know, they, people talk about the, 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 the founding fathers as elites. George Washington was not at the top of the society. He was kind of brought in, and then his military accomplishments kind of got him a lot of credibility and cachet among those who really controlled, like Fairfax, who really controlled a lot of American society. I mean, Fairfax, for all practical purposes, ran Virginia. I mean, they were the wealthiest family uh, in Virginia. Well, Martha Washington came from that 
she came from that kind of background. George Washington did not. His family kind of struggled, to tell you the truth. And I mean, he had to constantly try to take care of his mother throughout her life. So family was critical to him. And, and of course, he didn't have any children biologically. So, so his adopted children, you, you, you'll read, if you read his biography, you'll read about them and his relationships with them and what he tried to do for them and how he tried to nurture and encourage them and so forth. Same with um, uh, John and Abigail Adams. John wouldn't have been John without Abigail. I mean, Abigail was, was politically astute. In fact, I think in some ways she was more astute than her husband. I mean, I, that, I have a lot of admiration for John Adams, but, you know, I think the Alien and Sedition Act was one of his big mistakes, you know, where he started trying to punish people for the things that they said. Contrary to everything people tried to tell him that, but he, you know, I mean, I, I, think, I think John Adams, forgive me for going into this, but this stuff is, fascinates me. You may say, well, Bishop, it doesn't fascinate me. So. But since I'm doing the talking, sorry. <laughs> but, you know, George Washington was probably about six foot one. I thought I heard your voice earlier. I was looking for you. Uh, George Washington was probably about six foot one, six foot two. Well, John Adams was probably about five foot four. I, I think John Adams had a little guy complex. Forgive me. I'm not talking about little guys now. But I mean, I really, I really think he had a little guy complex. He, you know, he didn't get along with Jefferson. Jefferson was another tall guy. And in fact, they reconciled before they died, but I mean, they really hated each other's guts for a long time. And, and, and John Adams, George Washington, after, after he was no longer president, he would come to an event or something in Washington, and people would just go, wow, oh, there, there he is, George Washington. And John Adams said, well, he ain't that much. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, he's, you know, he used to feel a lot, a lot of jealousy. Well, I, I think Abigail reined him in and helped soften him. You know, he only served one term. Uh, but reined him in and softened him, and, and, and I think allowed him to ultimately, to, helped him at least, to ultimately become president. But uh, the point I'm making is, oh, my, my goodness, and, and Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln. I mean, you know, they lost two children, one while he was president, and, and uh, you know, this woman was by his side every step of the way. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting to read these stories. And, and, you know, here's the other thing, folks, that, you know, these are just, the, the historical ignorance of the American people keeps them from understanding, or keeps a lot of people from understanding, they were just like you and me. They were just human beings. Uh, there, there's a great story about this very attractive woman who Abraham Lincoln was coming in, I think coming into Washington, D.C., um, you know, in a, in a procession, and this very, very attractive woman, uh, Mary Todd Lincoln was not part of this, she was at home, but this very, very attractive woman rode up beside him and, and followed him through the procession, you know. And, um, I mean, there wasn't a whole lot said about it except that Mary Todd Lincoln heard about it. And when she heard about it, she let Abraham and let her know, in the future, <laughs> do not ride beside my husband. <laughs> You know, and Abraham Lincoln tried to calm her down, said, well, I, I, I didn't ask her to ride. I, I, didn't, I didn't make her ride. She said, she said, I know, but in the future, let her know not to. I, I said that simply to say, these are human beings with all the same issues you and I have. 
and, and, and we need to, to see the, the tremendous virtues that they had that allowed them to be used by God in the way that they were used. But they were families. From the very beginning, America was a place where families worked together and strove together and did things together. And, so, and frankly, I'm going to get into next week, I'm going to be talking about, I'm going to start uh, probably a, a, a two-message series, a brief under-series on this uh, family uh, series entitled How to Raise Boys in an Anti-Masculine World. Um, and because what has happened to families in our country, in my view, is largely the result of an assault on manhood. Now, that's not the only factor, but I think that's the major factor, an assault on manhood, trying to make men ashamed of their manhood. You all realize, just, just, just as one brief statistic, in 19, uh, I think it was 1960, might have been since then, but almost all the people who graduated from college, the majority of people who graduated from college, were men. Do you realize now that, that women are, I think, 69% of college graduates? Men, men have fallen way behind educationally. Um, men are falling behind in terms of their ability to earn an income. Uh, you know, we talk about the, the decimation of the black family. You realize that in 1960, uh, of Americans of European descent, only 3% of children were born out of wedlock. Today it's 36%, more than a third, and it's continuing to climb. So this is not just a problem in a certain ethnic communities. This is a problem across the board in our culture. And by the way, boys, I think, are suffering as a result of these dramatic changes far more than girls are. Not, don't, don't get me wrong. Girls need their fathers too. They need their daddies too. But I'm convinced of this. Boys need their daddies even more. They really do. They really do. So, so we'll, we'll get into all of that. But, but my point is family was how our country functioned. Everything was pretty much done around the family. So that, that's it. So faith, family. Third principle is this. Freedom. Freedom. You know, th this idea that each individual is inherently sovereign and free before Almighty God. Inherently sovereign and free before Almighty God. Now let me just say a word about this, this ideology, that this the racial ideology that grew up. And you may have heard me say this before, but, but even if I have, it's worth repeating. You all realize the concept of quote-unquote white is something relatively new. That's not the way people thought of themselves. It, 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 that, that was created by elites, largely slaveholders in our country, because remember, and here again, this is something you won't hear, only 8% of the people in the South owned slaves. You would think, based on the history, every white man in America owns a slave. 
Only a small number of people did because they couldn't afford them. Boy, that'll, that's, that's going to shake up some historians, a little amateur historians, because the picture you're given is, oh, and, and by the way, there were thousands. I think the number is 50,000. Don't hold me to that, but I'm pretty sure it's 50,000 in the South, in the antebellum South, just before the Civil War, free blacks, many of them owned slaves. That's a story that, you know, people don't want to tell either. Um, but, but what happened was, the first, the, when, when, when the first blacks arrived in 1619, they were not intergenerational slaves. They were indentured servants. They were, they were given a period of years to serve. Uh, that period was seven years. The most famous of those people is Anthony Johnson, uh, whose, I think, original name was Antonio, but uh, changed his name to Anthony Johnson, Americanized his name. Um, every person was given, I think, 50,000 acres of, of land. Uh, here again, don't hold me to the number, but they were given some percentage of acres of land uh, after they served their indentured servitude because, of course, they needed people to populate the land. They were trying to get people to work the land. Well, Anthony Johnson happened to be black, and he ended up with a, a, a plantation, about 250,000 acres um, in, uh, um, uh, on the eastern shore. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry, I think it was about 250 acres on the eastern shore. And, um, and he, of course, he owned slaves. And one of the slaves that he owned, um, a guy by the name of, of Kesor, sued him to be freed from indentured servitude and, and as a result of that, the, the, Anthony Johnson proving to the court that this guy tried to cheat him, the court bought it, and he was sentenced to lifetime servitude. Black man, lifetime servitude to a black man. In the early days, of course, when you've got black people being free and getting land and working land and hiring indentured servants, and by the way, free blacks had white indentured servants working for them. Here again, that's not a part of the history you'll hear. So, well, Bishop, wait, wait, how, how could that possibly be? Because this whole issue of white versus black was really created primarily by large landowners to control poor whites. Because what they did not want was for poor white people coming to America to ever realize they had more in common with indentured servants than they did with slave masters, with white slave masters. And, and this really came to the fore during Bacon's Rebellion, because uh, uh, Bacon was the guy who started a rebellion in uh, 1641, I think, um, somewhere in there. And, and he recruited black, white, because basically what they were saying was that they were, their land was being treated differently than the land of the elite wealthy owners who made sure that their land was secure, but the smaller, less wealthy owners were ignored, and often they, were the, they suffered the worst Indian attacks and all of that, and basically just had no recourse. And Nathaniel Bacon said, uh-uh, enough of that. And he got a bunch of people together in what they call Bacon's Rebellion, and they were mixed. They were of every racial background. Well, guess what the large landowners saw as a result of that. We can't have these white people and black people getting together. And that was the beginning of what you call racial ideology where, well, wait a minute, 
whether you're Irish or Italian or, or Eastern European or whatever, no, no, you're white. Because you have to remember, in Europe, people saw their race not as their skin color, but as someone from a different nation. So if you were Irish, you viewed the British as a different race and vice versa. And you, don't, you didn't go, well, we're all white people. It was those British or those Irish or those Italians. And so when you get here, for example, when you have the large influxes of people from other countries, you don't have the Italians and the Irish meeting each other here saying, well, you know, we're all white folks. Let's get together. They fought like dogs. And the Irish called, had nasty names for the Italians, and the Italians had nasty names for the Irish. And they fought. But the racial ideology was meant to say, well, now, wait, 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 wait. That's okay, but don't ever fight with the blacks. Don't ever side with them, because they're a different breed. But I mean, you all are familiar with Othello, right? Why didn't William Shakespeare do a, a play about Othello saying, well, now, you know he was black, so he was oppressed, and he was downtrodden, and, and you know, nobody liked him. You know, there's no race in, in Othello. Because people weren't thinking about that. It wasn't something they were caught up in. As, as I've explained before, when, when one people feels the need to oppress each other, they develop an ideology to justify that oppression. And that's true across all racial and cultural lines. It doesn't really matter what the background or skin color of people are. It's what they do. It's the sinful nature of human beings expressing itself. Amen? Amen. 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 That's why I, you all hear me. I prefer to use European, Americans of European descent or of Italian or Irish or, or Eastern European or Ukrainian or whatever it is. And, and Americans of African descent or Americans of Asian descent because we're, you know, wherever we came from, we're all Americans now. And, and that's, the, look, actually, if Dr. King said this originally, I've adapted it. But, you know, as preachers sometimes do, you know, they say the first time you hear preachers say something, you repeat it and you say, well, as as Reverend Smith has always said. And then the next time you say it, as I've heard someone say, and then the third time you say, it, as I always say. So <laughs> it's a little friendly, friendly plagiarism. But I think it was Dr. King who was the first one who said, you know, our ancestors may have come on different ships, but we're all in the same boat now. And, and, and you know. We don't want to sink the boat. Amen? Because we sink the boat. Guess what? We all go down in the boat. <laughs> Praise God. Hallelujah. So, so at any rate, all, all of that, believe it or not, was about freedom. <laughs> Psalm 119.45 says, I will walk at liberty, for I seek your precepts. Isaiah 61.1, the Lord has anointed me to proclaim what? Liberty to the captives. Jeremiah 34.17 God says, you have not obeyed me in proclaiming liberty, everyone to his brother and everyone to his neighbor. Galatians 5.1, stand fast in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. Galatians 5.13, for you, brethren, have been called to liberty. See, where did this concept of inherent human freedom come from? The word of God. They didn't conjure that up out of their own imaginations. They got it from the word of God, which says that God intended us to be free. 
Now, you all know that when the Constitution was ratified on September 17th of 1787, it did not have a Bill of Rights. The first 10 amendments we call the Bill of Rights. The first and second are the most famous, you know, the right to freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of religion, and the second, the right to the, the, the freedom to bear arms. And by the way, this idea that, well, it's different now, and the founding fathers, if they had known what weapons they have now, they wouldn't have put that in there, that's silly. Because here's what the founding fathers understood. Governments can go awry, and that human beings should always be in the position to defend themselves. I mean, we've seen it on the local level, right? Where a city, if you happen to be a law-abiding citizen minding your business like that couple was, and a mob comes on your property, there's no police there to defend them. And, and frankly, you know, they're, they're in trouble now for having brandished weapons, but if they hadn't brandished those weapons, they might have been dead by now. That's what held the mob at bay. Our founding fathers understood that ultimately your last line of defense for your safety is you. And that's what the Second Amendment is all about. It's not about hurting people. And it's true, we, we have a lot of guns in America because this is a frontier culture. And you weren't going out west. I mean, when you, anybody pioneering the west, you, you made sure that you had food and water and clothing and a gun. You better have something to protect yourself. Because there are bears out there, and there, there are natives out there who may or may not care for you. you got to defend yourself and your family and your own life, and there was no sheriff to call. We were talking about this because a guy who gave me a ride this weekend um, is a cowboy. I mean, a real cowboy. He said, I wanted to be a cowboy since I was a, since I was a kid. He said, and I, I worked two newspaper routes to buy some cowboy boots and some dungarees and a cowboy hat. He said, and as soon as I got old enough, he said, I started rodeo. He said, actual guy rides, doesn't do it anymore, but used to ride bulls and, and ride barking buckos and all of that. And, and we were talking about the fact that, you know, in the West, before there was law and order established, people were their own law and order. And I said, you know, you steal cattle and a horse, you're going to get hung. Now, I'm not saying that was right. <laughs> I'm just saying that, that you know, Whoever you stole it from, they caught you. They were going to deal with you themselves. There was no sheriff to call. Uh, I, I said that simply to say, when you're pioneering a wild country, it creates a certain culture that requires that people be capable of defending their own lives and the lives of their families. That's still very much a part of our culture. You know, believe it or not, I, I, I probably never said this to you before, but you know, particularly in inner cities, we know we got to get everybody on the subways. We got to get everybody on the buses. We, you know, we got to do away with all these cars. You know what I've often said? Cars are like America's horses. I want to have my own. Don't take, you're not taking my horse. <laughs> and you can't separate Americans from their cars. Uh-uh, there's no way. Amen. But, but look, the Bill of Rights was hotly debated. And initially, James Adams, uh, James, Adams, James Madison, called the father of the Constitution, was against it. And here's why he was against it. He said, because if you, if you name the rights, you are implying that that's all there are. He said, and the fundamental rights that God gives should never be limited to a simple list. 
Ultimately, he came around and realized, I, I think the better argument was, no, we need a Bill of Rights because there's certain things that are so fundamental that you simply need to set them forth. And of course, a couple years later, the Bill of Rights was passed and became part of the Constitution. Uh, and by the way, can I just use this as a footnote to say, this freedom and these fundamental rights, they believe, were given by God. And the Supreme Court has now taken upon itself to expand what I believe the fundamental rights are that God gave us and created what I call fake rights that the Supreme Court gives us. So see, the right to an abortion is a fake right. That's not a fundamental right God gives anybody. Yo, God gave you the right to kill your baby. No. That's, that's a fake right. The, the, the right to us, same-sex marriage, is a fake right given by the Supreme Court. That's not a fundamental right that God gave. God didn't give that as a fundamental right. Amen? The Founding Fathers understood that fundamental rights inherent to who we are as human beings. Now, the right to freedom of conscience, the right to speak, the right to travel, to, to govern my own affairs, the right to privacy, to be secure in my pro property, in my persons. You know, there, there are certain fundamental rights inherent to who I am as a human being. You start spinning out all these other rights, and guess what you need? Government to control people to make sure that they're enforced. And that's exactly what the Founding Fathers did not want. Principle number four, I'm running a little late, so let me get through this quickly. Principle number four, which is probably something you don't expect me to say and is forgotten, but principle number four was virtue. The founding fathers believed that you couldn't have freedom without moral virtue. You say, well, Bishop, how virtuous could they be? I mean, after all, this is what's always brought up. They had slavery. Well, how virtuous are we? I mean, how many of you as Christians have ever, as you've grown in your Christian walk, realized that you've had blind spots? You know what I mean by blind spots? In other words, you're a Christian, you love the Lord, you want to do what's right, but you realize one day, you know what, that attitude or that, that approach, or that, you know, that, 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 that wasn't, that, that's not really consistent with who God wants me to be. And you didn't really think about it in Christian terms, Sometimes it takes maturity and growth and revelation, which is what happened to the Founding Fathers, by the way. They grew in their understanding of, 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 the, of the, the inherent evil of slavery and for the most part came to condemn it. The only states that remained pretty recalcitrant, both in the Declaration and in the Constitution, were Georgia and North Carolina. South Carolina, sorry. Sorry, North Carolinas. South Carolina and Georgia. They were hardcore, okay? But, the, but think about this. When the nation was formed, 11 of the 13 colonies wanted to include a denunciation and an outlawing of slavery. How often do you hear that? 11 out of 13. So, well, Bishop, then why did they do it? Because they knew to fight Great Britain, they needed everybody. And they compromised. And so what they did was they put it off. And they kept putting it off. And they kept putting it off. And until ultimately there was a civil war and you couldn't put it off anymore. But look, this idea, understand something. The moral conscience of this nation caused slavery to be a matter of debate from the moment it started. There's never a moment in American history when slavery is not hotly debated. Where there are not voices saying, this is wrong. It's inconsistent with who we are. Well, if we're such a racist nation, why are there voices speaking against it? But you don't hear about that. 
Because there's a narrative that people want you to believe. America's bad, America's evil, America's no good, America's always oppressed black people. What about all the good, decent people who have done so much to try to help obtain liberty for every American? Do you know almost a third of those lynched by the Ku Klux Klan during the lynching period were white people? Who dared stand up for the rights of black folks? What about them? Why don't they count? Why doesn't, why isn't that an expression of America?